This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. Welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Piotr Kosicki. I'm a history professor at the University of Maryland in College Park. My guest today is Geneviève Zubritsky. She is a professor of sociology at the University of Michigan, where she directs the Weiser Center for Europe and Eurasia and the Copernicus Center for Polish Studies. A historical and cultural sociologist, she has published widely on nationalism and religion, collective memory, national mythology, and the politics of commemoration and visual culture and materiality. She is the author of the award-winning The Crosses of Auschwitz, Nationalism and Religion in Post-Communist Poland, and Beheading the Saint, Nationalism, Religion, and Secularism in Quebec, and the editor of National Matters, Materiality, Culture, and Nationalism. In 2021, Zubrzycki was the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and was awarded the Bronisław Malinowski Prize in Social Sciences from the Polish Institute of Arts and Sciences of America. And we'll be talking about her brand new book, out in 2022 with Princeton University Press today, entitled Resurrecting the Jew, Nationalism, Philosemitism, and Poland's Jewish Revival. Welcome, Genevieve. Thank you, Piotr, for the introduction and for the invitation. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. I know everyone's looking forward to hearing about this book. I will say, not to be too uh, upfront about it, but this is one of my favorite books that I've ever, uh, I think, read it from any academic, and I hope that the listeners will all rush out and buy it, and I'm sure they'll reach the same conclusion. But I'll let you give as many teasers as you like in the course of our conversation today. Let me start out with a a version of a question I always ask at the beginning of these conversations. Obviously, this is your not your first book, and this book is connected to your earlier work. But if I may zero in on the word philosemitism for a second, I'm curious, when you were working on the crosses of Auschwitz or uh, when you were writing about Quebec, did you see yourself coming back to Poland to write about philosemitism? Did th- that word philosemitism, was it on your radar back when you were writing your first book? That's a good question. I mean, the word itself was not on my radar but uh, the process and the phenomenon was emerging when I was doing the research for the crosses of Auschwitz. So that first book, just to say a few words about that one, um, was uh, a study of, of the reconfiguration of the relationship between Catholicism and Polish national identity after the fall of communism. And my window, uh, my window into those processes were, uh, a specific set of events called the War of the Crosses, where ultra-nationalist Poles and also, you know, ordinary Poles, but who felt that um, that Auschwitz was their own site of martyrdom, so contested a new set of ways of thinking about World War II and of Auschwitz or Auschwitzim, uh, erected hundreds of crosses just outside of the former camp and the current museum. And so I was in the 1990s in Poland and again in the early 2000s doing research at the museum. Um, And in that process, I met a lot of Poles who were for the first time discovering um, a different side of World War II, a different narrative of the Second World War in which the Holocaust now took center stage. And that was not the case 
um, in their own educational background in Poland, where Polish suffering was really the main way of talking about um, about uh, World War II. So I met and interviewed people we would call now, well, not only now, but that we could qualify as philo-Semites, but people who were very engaged in basically uncovering the history of the Holocaust in Poland, that were engaged in Polish-Jewish and Christian-Jewish dialogue, um, and uh, had different motivations for doing so. And so I kept in contact with these people. My second book, as you mentioned, was not on Poland, um, but I, I should say that I started the research for uh, this third monograph while writing the book on Quebec. So there's different ways in which the first and the second books are connected to this one, different themes that, uh, and intellectual questions that are related to this. Uh, but philo-Semitism was not also mainstream the way that it became, uh, especially after 2010. But we can talk about this uh, a little later. So the timing for your research, I think, is quite important. And you're quite clear about this at various points in the book. You mentioned early on that you wonder if you had done some of your interviews after the Pauline Museum was opened, if the information, the data you got would have been remotely the same. Uh, likewise, I mean, I think implicitly, sometimes more explicitly throughout the book, there is the specter of the law and justice government's rise to power in 2015. So this book in some ways is very much a product of the 2010s, even though it speaks to a phenomenon that goes back decades, if not longer. So I'm curious Obviously, I'm a historian. Uh, you don't have to think about this as a historian. We have a very eclectic audience. But what do you think is the right chronology to place, if I, if I may, on the emergence of this philo-Semitic phenomenon you're describing? Right. So perhaps it might be helpful for the, for the listeners um, for me to describe a little bit what we have in mind, right? So um, when I'm talking about the Jewish revival and when people talk about the Jewish revival, they're actually referring to two different things. One is the, the renewal of Jewish communal life after the fall of communism. Uh, and that's made possible uh, with an influx of new human and financial resources, so institution building, it's also related to uh, a change in consciousness so that people, uh, you know, some taboos were lifted and people could uh, either discuss their Jewish origins or discover them and reveal them to others. So there's really something happening within the Jewish uh, communities, plural, because they're very, very, very different also. Um, so that's one aspect of the Jewish revival. And this, uh, you're right, actually starts even in 1980s, you know, much, you know, earlier. The other phenomenon, which also has its beginnings in the 1980s in the Solidarity Movement, is a critical look at Polish-Jewish relations before and during the Second World War. Um, and that starts in the late uh, 1980s. There's, you know, some famous poems by uh, Czesław Miłosz, uh, an influential article written by um, Poor Paul's Look at the, the, the Ghetto by Jan Boński and Tegonik Bawszechny. So you have like this, this embryonic beginning of uh, Paul's looking and thinking critically about their own treatment of Jews and the silences about Polish-Jewish relations. However, if we're thinking historically and also sociologically, um, I think that the real turning point is 2000, and it's with the publication of Jan Gross's book, Neighbors. Uh, that book is actually changing everything because the debate about Polish participation in the Holocaust is no longer one just between, you know, historians or intellectuals or, you know, uh, intellectual Catholic elites. It becomes a really a mainstream uh, debate 
uh, and I was in Poland in 2000 uh, when it was published, and then 2001 again when there were commemoration and acceptance of the po- Polish participation that the programs that took place in 1941 in the small town town of Jedwabne, and uh, everyone was talking about that book. And I remember hearing that word all the time, Jedwabne, Jedwabne. And I was like, what is Jedwabne? You know, I was not aware what that was. Uh, so in buses, cafes, you know, uh, I was doing research at the Auschwitz-Birkenau Museum and they gave training about to the guides about that because they knew people would be asking about it. I mean, it was everywhere. And I think that this is a key moment uh, that changes really, I call that in the book, a narrative shock. This is what really changes how or ch- challenges to the to its core uh, notions of Polishness and how it's related to a self-understanding of victimhood. Because if Poles committed those crimes, uh, how could they be martyrs if they were perpetrators of, of such an or? Um, and I think so for historical consciousness, it's really a turning point. Uh, It's also a turning point um, politically because after that, the coming to power and even before the organization of the right also coalesces around this re-narrativization of Polish history and this questioning of Polish um, tsnota. You know, it's not uh, this kind of, um, how would you say that in English? Uh, Virtue. Virtue, virtue, right? Um, And so uh, law and justice, even before, you know, they win uh, big, were articulating a discourse about ending the politics of shame and trying, reacting very strongly against a movement of reckoning that was ongoing in Poland. Um, and so uh, there's different things also that happen. So 2000, 2001, uh, Poland's entry to uh, the EU, 2004, and then there's funds for all sorts of initiatives that are related to uh, multiculturalism and citizenship and things like that. Um, and then you have pressure from right-wing governments to kind of muffle um, uh a reckoning with you know a difficult past, um, and this contributes also to what then I call you know a Jewish turn that's multifaceted, and the embrace of Jewish culture as a signifier for something else, uh, and that is mostly after 2010 that you have like this explosion of festivals of Jewish culture, and there's about 45, almost 50 nowadays in Poland. Uh, etc. An opening of bookstores, restaurants, people also learning Hebrew or Yiddish, some of them going as far as converting, people looking for Jewish origins, etc. And the book is primarily about that. It's about non-Jews um, being invested in the resurrection of Jewish culture in Poland. Uh, you just outlined beautifully how uh, multifaceted and diverse I think the, the the overall canvas on which you paint the story is in your book. I think going back to Jan Gross's neighbors, it's it's impossible not to have that conversation on some level. I like also something you said in the opening pages of the book, denial and deflection constitute only half the story. Uh, and I, I want to connect that particular quotation with what you just said, that really this is a book about non-Jews. Uh, and that sounds at first blush like appropriation, like maybe it there's something, maybe not nefarious, but certainly self-interested and certainly uh, self-focused about the non-Jews uh, reimagining of Jewish culture and insertion of a Jewish revival into Poland. Is there, I mean, I, I, I hate to put it this way, but I'll be blunt. Is there a value judgment at the core here? Because denial and deflection, I think everyone would say that's a bad thing, <laughs> except those who are doing it who would call it something else. But the idea of revival typically connotes quite 
pleasantly, if not indeed constructively and progressively? Do you feel like you exposed something a little bit less progressive and constructive? Well, what I'm trying to do, and I, I, I mean, your question is very important. Um, it's, what are the motivations of people in, involved in that revival? Um, and one thing that I'm, I'm happy about is that I, you know, the research for that book started even before I started the official field work for it, right? So it goes back to the late 1990s. So I was able to see the evolution, the progression and different directions in which this kind of philo-Semitism uh, developed in Poland. Um, but also, I was able to see it through leftist government, centrist government, right to center, far right, and see how, you know, the actors might change the projects were not. Um, so I think that having a, a, you know, not a long durée, but something that's actually longer than just five years gives a better perspective to understand, you know, what is going on. Um, and the normative aspect is, is a, is a difficult one. So I would say that a lot of people are involved in that process and their intentions and the inspiration to their investment in Jewish culture is related to, uh, reckoning with the past. Um, and so they're not involved in denial and actually it's not that they want to gloss over you know and celebrate you know shtetl life etc actually most of the main cultural entrepreneurs um memory activists even see 2001 2000 2001 as a turning point for themselves and their organizations um so it's not uh so yeah i mean for those people i mean i i really feel that they're fully aware and they're aware also of some of the pitfalls of the progress of the, the, the project. There's a lot of people who consume Jewish culture and who participate who are naive uh, in that. And I also document that. Um, I can give a, a couple examples a little later. Um, and then there are people who um, are not only naive, but you know, there's a good dose of narcissism too, um, and self-involvement and unreflective, you know, uh, engagement with with Jewish culture. Um, so this led me also to to have to think about the different, uh, really, to, to have a, an interpretive lens, you know, to look at the meaning behind uh, the action of people producing or consuming Jewish culture, what it meant for them, what were, how were they linking their participation in the revival uh, to their own personal projects or how, you know, what vision of Poland they had for themselves or their children, uh, their children, for example. Um, but in terms of, for example, naive, um, you know, for example, I, I analyzed in one chapter um, testimonies that were left on the website um, of a, a, a popular project that was called I Miss You Jew, where the main memory activists would have graffiti or murals saying I Miss You Jew to try to also uh, take the, the word Jew, who is a quasi-taboo word, an insult in Polish, and take it back from anti-Semites. Um, and when I was reading what people were posting on the website, I, uh, I was actually, and that's probably the, for me, the data that was the most disturbing to see it to the, the extent to which people were talking really about themselves when they were supposed to be commemorating a Jewish life. Uh, so it was not about someone's experience of being kicked out of Poland in 1968. It's for them losing that friend or losing that tailor or losing whatnot. Um, and I, I, this I felt was very problematic. Um, the fact that these were people who were 
uh, educated and also participating in a project that is meant to be progressive, um, implicated enough to go and write a, a testimony on a website, sign their name and not see how problematic some of their reflections were uh, and the tone of their, their, their writing, for example. Um, this is a really telling example that you give. I mean, it seemed the the, the larger campaign, and I mean, I, a lot could be said about uh, Betlejevsky, and also, I mean, I'm struck, you, you end that chapter by talking about Burning Barn, who started with Jan Gross and Neighbors and Yedvabne, and in some sense, uh, that later project of his really, if I can put it this way, uh, marginalized Betlejevsky within the, the community of memory activists. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you about that specifically, how you see the interaction between different projects that are simultaneously playing out, trying to capture or maybe uh, shape the nostalgia. And also, uh, if I can paint the scene, because something that you noted, not just with uh, Betlejevsky, but with some of the billboard campaigns that you documented. By the way, I love the visuals. It's yay to you and yay to the press for reproducing all of this, all of these graphics in the book. Uh, it's really wonderful for the readers. Uh, performance artists who were arrested for charged with incitement to violence, but with the, let's say, the uh, ironic take or the paradoxical take or the critical take on anti-Semitism missed. And if anything, the philo-Semitism becoming the basis for a very negative reaction from police officials or others who were encountered. So you mentioned a moment ago sort of unwitting problematic statements made by I think participants in good faith. What about unwitting participants who are acting in bad faith? So, if I can ask those two together. Uh, well, I mean, the, what you're referring to. So, in the introduction, I give the example of a street artist. He's kind of a, a Polish Banksy, uh, basically. No one knows who he is. He goes by Peter Fuss, Peter Fuss, or Peter Fuss. Um, and he made this giant billboard of, um, you know, photographs of, of political personas in Poland from left to right. Uh, some are Jewish. Most are not. You have, uh, for example, a very famous, uh, notorious, uh, dare I say fascist, probably, uh, Father Ridzik of Radomeria, for example, and you have one of the twin brother, Kaczynski, is also on this, uh, with the comment, Jews get out uh, of our country. And then what he did is photographing people walking by and looking at this, including, you know, a police car coming and investigating, and you see them in the, in the car looking at this and wondering what they should do. Um, and he had with this uh, an exhibit where he was showing anti-Semitic comments posted on blogs with Radio Maria uh, anti-Semitic rhetoric uh, in their radio shows. And he was arrested and the exhibit was uh, closed down. So what's interesting there is, is twofold. One is that there is a strong reaction to what is perceived as anti-Semitism, which is relatively new. But second is the inability to read what is anti-Semitic and what is not. Uh, and Betlejevsky, when he made also his first graffiti, I Miss You Jew, was arrested uh, for uh, hate speech. Um, and then when he explained that it was not anti-Semitism, that he was actually actually indeed missing Jews, then he was kicked out and saying, well, you final Semite, if you love Jews so much, get the fuck to, to Israel. Um, so I think that this, how to read anything Jewish is becomes, is complicated because of layers of signification of Jewishness in Polish consciousness. So for example, even the Jew with a coin um, that we see now in Poland. So a representation, uh, either folk in, in, um, in, in wood, wooden sculptures, but also now paintings of a Jew count counting gold or a little 
plastic Jew with a coin, an actual coin that you put in your wallet. Um, and Poland has been debates about this. Is this anti-Semitic or philo-Semitic? And if it's philo-Semitic, is philo-Semitism always the, f- the flip side of anti-Semitism, right? Um, so I think it's uh, the, the, the Polish case shows really different and very complex ways in which the symbol of the Jew and Jewishness as a trope comes into play. And that across the, the political spectrum and with religious Poles, Catholic, Protestant, uh, or Jewish, and secular activists as well. Um, and so that's what I was trying to do in the book is to analyze a wide range of practices, um, memory projects that were both um, from individuals, NGOs, and state-sponsored institutions, um, and also people who participate and who articulate their Polish lives around that project. So you say quite clearly uh, in the introduction that you don't consider philo-Semitism for the purposes of the of the story you're reconstructing here to be anti-anti-Semitism, that there's a much more complex framework that needs to be adopted and that you map beautifully throughout the different cases that you explore in the book. Uh, I, I, I like the idea of staying with the specific examples. I'm curious if um, how, how, how we could talk about philo-Semitism in a way that is maybe not about anti-Semitism, maybe more about the Poles themselves, if we take the quite famous example of the Polin Museum of the History of Polish Jews. I mean, you have a chapter which isn't, it's not exactly all about Polin, but I will say the, the, the memoryscape of, or the museological memoryscape in Poland very difficult to escape uh, Polin. And in fact, I wouldn't want to. I think that Pauline quite, I mean, you, it, it, it's wonderful how you center it while also incorporating other museums. So I'm curious, uh, clearly this is a museum packaged for not just Polish public consumption, but international consumption as well. Uh, what does philosemitism mean in the context of a project uh, that is clearly so uh, public facing on a grand scale? Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I define philo-Semitism uh, in the introduction, what I was trying to, to do, when I say it's not anti-Semitism, what I wanted is not to reduce the phenomenon to a reaction to something else. Uh, and I also didn't want from the get-go to think that philo-Semitism was just another form of anti-Semitism. So I defined it, you know, in Weberian terms, like trying to have like a value-free definition. And basically I use it to describe, you know, a wide range of feelings and practices, you know, uh, about Jewish culture. And that includes even people who are not Jewish and identifies um, as as Jews. There's a lot of people like this who are not Jewish, no Jewish rules and feel like that. Um, Pauline is interesting uh, for a variety of reasons. I mean, one one of which is that actually the idea was sparked um, and was start you know emerged uh, while uh, Lech Kaczynski was mayor of Warsaw, right? Uh, he later became of peace, law, law and justice. Um, so we don't want to you know we don't want to uh, forget about that. So right-wing politician who wants to start something like this. So um, the state, regardless of who's in power, definitely has a stake in the museum um, and wanting to use this as their, in Polish, like their visitówka, their carte de visite, you know, it's like their calling card, basically, going abroad because it shows, it showcases Poland's, primarily in good light, but it also shows that Poland cares about its Jewish past. Um, But the museum is also, it's a collaboration between local institutions, uh, national institutions, and transnational, you know, and 
institutions. It had funding from the state, from the city, from uh, Polish and uh, North American donors. So it's a very interesting case um, of also the Jewish revival in Poland. You know, it represents really different forces at work. And its exhibit, as you mentioned, is tailored, you know, for two different set of audiences and the Polish audience and a non-Polish audience. Um, and they sell the museum and the exhibit differently to those two audiences. So one um, thing that's like for, for tourists going to see that museum, they're, they're actually less critical of the exhibit, generally speaking, than um, than. Poles. Most of the critiques about the museum come from Poland itself, from people who think that there's not enough about Polish collaboration or about the Holocaust and Polish participation in it. Um, so what I'm trying to show um, in that chapter is not only the, 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 the historical discourse that's presented in the exhibit, but primarily, because it is very, it's a fine, it's very nuanced, etc. But it is how visitors actually, what they were getting out of it. So through ethnographic observations um, and exit interviews, we were able to see what, what, what it was that captured people's imagination, what they remembered, what they thought was cool and important. Um, and one of the dangers of the museum that has little to do with the museum itself, little to do with the exhibit itself and how it was conceived is precisely what you mentioned before, is the the broader museological field in Poland and uh, the the broader field of national discourses. And so one issue is that it focuses on Jewish life, uh, which is obviously important. But for Poles who go and visit uh, other sites that celebrate their own martyrdom and then their heroism, um, the exhibit can be folded into a very you know, self-congratulatory um, uh, narrative of Poles, you know, welcome Jews who were in Poland for a thousand years and prospered here, and it's the birthplace of you know. Uh, Zionism and Hasidism and, you know, all sorts of religious uh, ideas and political projects. Uh, and that was destroyed by the Nazis. Poles tried to help, but it didn't work. Um, and uh, Poles even died helping them, right? So, I mean, if you visit different museums in Poland, a, a school child, I mean, could have that kind of impression. Um, so... What I want to what I wanted to, to express is is basically you know the reception of an exhibit or a museum is, is and a museum like a book exists outside of its author. My book is out there; it's being read. It belongs to the readers to you know now, and so does the museum. Um, and I think that's why it becomes important to safeguard not just the museum itself and the surrounding grounds, but also think of an entire f- discursive field about history uh, in order to, to change perceptions of, of the past. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So I, I want to highlight one particular element of what you were describing a minute ago, which is this contrast between emphasis on martyrology and suffering and sacrifice and death and violence, and on the other, on life, a more longitudinal, long-durée type of vision of uh, also not necessarily a critical vision in any way, but let's say simply the, the Pauline vision. Uh, I, I was, I'm mindful of the passages you cited from 
then Polish President Komorowski's speech, which weren't that much about Jews at all, more about how Poland was a great place for Jews for a very long time. Uh, there is a certain mythos of the early modern Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth as having been a multicultural haven and a haven that was lost. And there's great scholarship on this that it, that's not even necessarily relevant for this particular conversation. I'm curious if you see, uh, because it sounds from what you were saying a minute ago that, that you'd want to underscore the importance of protecting that alternative vision of uh, po Poland as a place of life, or at least understanding that that's part of the revival. It also carries certain downsides and potential hermeneutic, uh, I don't know, negative lessons for those school kids who are going to be bouncing back and forth between the different right. museums. So I, I think that's what, that is the challenge of progressive nationalists, I call them, or progressive activists who, who are Polish and want to build a different Poland. Right. So they want to build a civic and a secular Poland. They want to divorce Polishness from Catholicism. They don't want the Catholic Church to be part of basically a state apparatus. Um, and what do they have? You know, what kind of symbols and stories do they have at their disposal to articulate a vision that will seem really truly Polish to 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 the nation, to the people? Um you know, because a civic discourse can be seen as, you know, uh, uh, an, you know an import uh, from the EU or as a remnant of communist speech, you know, uh, speak. Um, so they're trying to articulate, you know, what would be like a truly indigenously, you know, multicultural, civic, open, tolerant society. And they go back then to this kind of mythical... Um, you know, Jagiellonian uh, Poland of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and the largest religious and ethnic minority, you know, until World War II were Jews, you know, representing 10% of the Polish popula population. So on the one hand, what I'm trying to show, it is an important political project on the other, it also risks to fall into a different kind of mythology. And it can also be appropriated by the right to show that, see, we were always good and we always did this. Um, and in the book, I, I refer to this kind of uh, problem to as you know, the tragedy of Polish civic nationalism. You know, that they're stuck in a remythologization of the past, um, in which, in order to recreate a multicultural society but without actual minorities, um, the Jew must, you know, they resurrect Jewish culture in various ways. Um, but the Jew has to remain other. Uh, because if you assimilate the Jew into the Polish nation completely, then they're absorbed and disappears. Um, and so there is, you know, objectification, and there is a problem that um, of that otherness that remains and a exoticization. Um, but I didn't want to show because I've I've spent, you know, a long time in Poland and interviewed, you know, over a hundred people. I don't think it's a simple issue of cultural appropriation. I don't think it's like an instrumentalization of Jewishness. I don't, you know, I think that there's something that's much more thoughtful um, at work by most of the organizers of these projects and cultural initiatives, um, but they're still stuck in that phenomenon of of rebuilding multiculturalism, the idea of civic Polish nationalism around the presence of minorities who are no longer living in Poland. And if they're not living there, then you don't have their lived experiences or even their own interpretations of histories that are being expressed in the public sphere. 
I'm, I was very struck by one of the final lines from uh, chapter five of your book. If Jewish culture can save Poles from their nightmares and Poland's deafening ethnic and religious monotony, what's in it for the Jews? <laughs> uh, and the reason I bring that up is, of course, in the next chapter, which I, I thought was really extraordinary how you compose these different elements together, you talk about what potentially could have been, uh, let's say, a buy-in for actual Jews as opposed to imagined, culturally reified, uh, <laughs> appropriated, so to speak, uh, cultural Jewishness. And that has to do with a, a variety of institutions and experiences that you yourself had uh, from an ethnographic standpoint. So the Jewish Cultural Festival, the Jewish Community Center in Krakow and in Warsaw, the uh, birthright trip that you took. And that, that last one in particular, I think, is quite extraordinary. I like the line from your methodological note at the end of the book, being neither Jewish nor in my 20s. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so if, if I could ask you maybe to wear two hats at the same time uh, for our, our listeners' benefit here and talk a little bit about maybe the actual positive side of the story you're telling, if if you'd see it that way, if I'm not mischaracterizing it. Yeah, no, I think that there is a clear, you know, upside to this. And the upside is that people who do have Jewish origins, many of whom are just discovering them, right? So I, we should say, how many Jews in Poland? Because I'm sure your listeners are going to be wondering about this, right? There used to be about 3.3 million before World War II, uh, and there is now, depending on how you count Jewishness, between seven and 13,000. And if you're really optimistic and you open up your definition, you could say there's as many as 100,000. Um, if you count Polish citizens who have one uh, Jewish grandparent. But let's say 20,000, that would be already generous, right? Okay. Um, there's a lot of people now in their 20s and 30s who are learning as Holocaust survivors are in, you know, 80s and 90s, uh, very often on deathbed confessions, basically revelations that, oh, I'm not your birth mother, for example. Um, your father was given to me by a woman in the ghetto. That I mean, yeah, there, There's like hundreds, if not thousands of stories like this um, of people who are discovering by chance also. So I have one interviewee who, who was part of that uh, birthright, you know, who was basically snooping around her grandmother's stuff and found out that she had filed for reparation from the German government and then realized that the, her grandmother had been in the Wuj ghetto. So there's a lot of stories like this. And these people who were raised Polish, raised for most of them Catholic, um, they have options. They have an option to adopt and develop a Jewish side of their history if they choose to. Um, I would say 15, 20 years ago, that would not have been possible or desirable. Um, and now because of, you know, cultural festivals, the Pauline Museum and a, a discourse in Polish society where there's a lot of philo-Semitic discourses uh, going around in newspapers and TV shows and movies, etc., they can actually uh, decide to embrace that. And there's also institutions that will welcome them. Uh, 20 years ago, the only way that you could learn about Judaism or Jewishness would be to knock on, you know, uh, the door of the rabbi in Warsaw um, with bodyguards or, you know, not very intimidating if you don't know what a Jew or Jewishness is. And now you can go to the JCC. And even before that, you go to the Festival of Jewish Culture in Krakow, and you kind of acquaint yourself with some of these. Um, that festival, for example, serves as a meeting place for, for Jews from all over Poland, and as well as Polish Jewish diaspora, especially 68ers who come back every summer and hang out together, etc. Uh, so I think that the current moment is actually providing the broader context in which people 
uh, can discover and if they wish so, accept the fact that they have Jewish roots and also to kind of dig deeper to learn more about their family history and where they're from, uh, etc. And then Birthright was full of um, teenage and young adults uh, of in that situation, people who had, you know, one grandparent, basically, uh, that was their first trip to Israel, and they're encountering, you know, Israel for the first time, and a specific discourse also about Judaism um, and Jewishness, that's a Zionist one. Um, but they have options, and options that did not exist to their parents, for example. Um, and this is why some Jewish leaders say that there's a potential, you know, a, a large potential for growth in the Jewish community. Um, if that generation decides that, yes, they will embrace uh, Judaism as a religion or as a cultural identity. I'm going to follow up just for a minute and ask you as uh, an ethnographer and a sociologist participating in some of these uh, cultural events. And you make a point of saying early on, uh, I like the way you phrased it in, in the book, that uh, your own identity often served as a gateway for interlocutors to discuss what constitutes Polishness, i.e. sometimes you were taken for being Jewish. Sometimes you were quite explicit that you weren't and you were still <laughs> taken as Jewish. Jewish. Uh, but in the context of the Jewish Community Center or the birthright trip, where you clearly forged relationships and you got to observe longitudinally, uh, in some cases, what was going on, uh, how did you conceptualize this? Uh, did you want to become more of an insider? Did you want, especially given this question about non-Jews fashioning Jews, did that matter for you as a researcher? Or did you really see yourself as being largely external positionally here? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, yes, I was external uh, to a certain extent because, I, I mean, I would say because I'm not Polish, Right? So I was entering as a non-Pole. So not only as a non-Jew, but as a non-Pole. But as a non-Pole um, who speaks Polish and spent a lot of time in Poland and who has Polish ancestry, hence my last name. Um, but one thing that made it plausible for me to be there and not, not to be considered by um, people from the community as as an outsider, was the fact that most people participating in those events were kind of like me. That is, they were Polish, but most of them were not raised Jewish at all. And they were like ethnographers. Like, what is an ethnographer, anthropologist, or, you know, you basically are like a child. You, are, you, you learn everything. You look, you observe, and you learn how to be in a setting. You learn the rules. And for most of the people there, um, so, so some uh, had Jewish roots and were learning from zero. Some had no Jewish roots but were curious. And that's, for example, all the, the volunteers at the JCC Krakow, the volunteers at the, the Jewish festival. A lot of non-Jews, young Poles who donate their time and they observe and they want to learn. Uh, so my presence was not conspicuous. I, and I didn't have to um, erase myself out of the picture. Uh, I blended in quite well, actually, because there was always other people who needed to be told what you're supposed to do or not not to do when. Um, so for me also, as an ethnographer in that position, it made my job easier because I didn't feel as inadequate and as uncomfortable. Um, and then we're, when you're in that situation, you, you can learn more because you're more open to, you know, to being taught. Uh, so for me, I mean, the context was, and, and also the questions I was asking, the questions I was asking were not seen as, oh, that's a personal question or that's a touchy question, because these are the questions that people were asking themselves anyway. So um, 
Um, and to go back to one thing that you said at the beginning, you know, how was it that for me to um, to be doing that research over several years and the differences I observed? Um, so one thing that I saw, like asking, doing interviews with non-Jews volunteering in Jewish organizations, you know, in 2010, 13, 14, um, and now what's different is that there was no... Um, overarching narrative of why they were there you know so now i go to certain websites and and it's already kind of not packaged but there's a narrative from from non-jews participating in jewish life as to why they do this and when i was doing interviews they were articulating their thoughts with me kind of brainstorming and very often when I was listening to the tapes after that, you know, they would say something, oh, I never thought about it this way, you know, yeah, that's true. I mean, and it's not something I had suggested to them. It was in their talking to me, they were articulating for the first time what they felt their work meant for them, for them and potentially for Poland. This is a good moment for me to ask about politics. Uh, the state is obviously a player at various points to a greater or lesser extent. Although in the in the stories that you were just describing and in the ethnography you were just describing, maybe not. Although uh, you make a hypothesis, you set out a hypothesis in your intro, which I thought was really, really important to, to, to think about in framing how I was reading your book. The, that critical engagement with the past uh, entails a certain kind of political critique of the present. In other words, whether we're focusing on the upside or the downside of the phenomena you're describing in this book, generally speaking, we're talking about political opponents of the far right. And in that sense, there's a mainstream political valence, even if we're talking about profoundly local, profoundly grassroots activism that really is about individuals on a voyage of self-discovery or maybe you know groups of people, networks that are establishing themselves. I was curious if you see that connection throughout all of the cases you describe, since they're so different. With the Pauline Museum, it's obvious, and you know many of our listeners will have read about it in the New York Times. Uh, with the Jewish Community Center in Krakow, it's not so obvious. But I look at the chronology that you give of when different institutions were established. Okay, the, the Krakow JCC was 2007, but the one in Warsaw was 2013. Uh, Hillel Polska is 2017, if I remember correctly. So a lot has been going on since law and justice took power. I don't know if we can do a one-to-one -one correlation here, but I'm just curious how you feel after having written the book and done all of the thinking about the the, the relationship there. I... Um, I think that some of the institution building, um, you know, that happens later, like in the late 2010s, is also part of this kind of, it's building, right? You need kind of a push or an elan to kind of get started. Um, and I think that... Um, you know, when you look at uh, even festivals, for example, right? So I map, I map those and I do like on a series of maps how they spread territorially. Um, the, 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 the Jewish life in the appendix that I have, like this chronology, I mean, you show that there's, it's really after 2010. Um, but I think it's really in continuation with things that happen uh, before. So for me, it's still 2001 and it's still 2004 in terms of resources. And then you really have, you know, Jewish communal life itself really developing um, and more investments coming into Poland to be doing this. So when you look even at religious groups in Poland, you know, you know, so when does Chabad come? Uh, so I don't think that they're coming and that's related to the coming to power of a right-wing government. It's not a reaction to that. So I think that it follows, on the one hand, their own tactic. 
you know, their own, not tactic, I mean, their own idea of development of Jewish life uh, in Poland, and that becomes easier, um, you know, in the 2010s. Um, but I think that activism, uh, when uh, law and justice uh, comes to power, um, and when they really put forth their historical policy, that people become stronger in their resolve to continue uh, that dialogue about Polish-Jewish re- uh, relations and the dark corners of, of Polish history. But I really don't see that growth related to a reaction to populist, you know, far-right populism. Uh, it has roots that are deeper and it was, you know, much earlier and it had everything to go there. So in a way, it's the root, the fruits that that came about uh, for work that starts in, you know, in the early 2000s and even before that. Um, I think that people remain committed to this after uh, law and justice comes to power. But you could think that what really changes, I, I think, I mean, more significantly after uh, law and justice comes to power is LGBTQ movements and it's the feminist movements that really has like a, a new life actually after that. Um, so I want, yeah, I don't want us to think about this as a reaction to far right um, populism. Um, I think it's a dialectic. I think that people could have shied away from continuing to, you know, research and explore and debate and um, exhibit uh, difficult, you know, Polish participation in in the Holocaust. And people decided that, no, they're not going to be silent. Um, Yeah, I think that's what I would say. I don't know if that answers your question, really, but. It does. No, I, and I, I'm very struck also, yeah, I think you reference Agnieszka Graf somewhere talking about uh, gays as the new Jews in Poland. Though, of course, I mean, we have to underscore that anti-Semitism remains a profound issue and is weaponized. And we see this in all the media coverage of any, uh, you know, Independence Day uh, manifestation, basically. But you also see, like, when she says this, and Magdalena Schroda, also um, uh, another professor and public intellectual mentioned that gays are the new Jews. You also have basically uh, feminists or um, LGBT activists uh, who are also accused of being Jewish. So there's a structural equivalence on the one hand that they're the new uh, scapegoats and they're the new enemy that the regime is trying to fight, but they're also accused of being Jews. Um, So that's interesting as well. So on this point specifically, I'm curious if at the end of the day, obviously you traveled far and wide in Poland. This wasn't just a book written out of Warsaw and Kraków, but a lot of ways Warsaw and Kraków really dominate uh, the the landscape. And so I'm curious, you know, you, you yourself highlight the importance of local context. If so much of the locality is based in Poland's largest cities, or indeed the two uh, most significant cities in Poland. How Polish uh, is the story in a more general sense? Uh, obviously, there's a communicated dimension, there's a mediatized dimension, but highlighting these kinds of grassroots efforts. The internet makes this hard to judge, I know, but I'm curious what you think. Well, okay. So, I mean, I think it's, it's of course the main uh, features or, you know, of, of the Jewish revival in its various dimensions tend to be in, uh, in Warsaw, Krakow, Wrocław, a little bit in Gdańsk, but not that much. Uh, because that's where a lot of the smaller Jewish communities are. You know, they are, they are, of course, Jewish individuals in many, many places. You know, Katowice, there's a rabbi. So you have other places too, of course. Um, but that's where Lublin, but that's where really most of the activities um, 
related to the Jewish revival, whether Jewish communal life or about the resurrection of Jewish culture are happening. But the initiatives are not just in those cities. I mean, you think of an organization, NGO, like the Forum for Dialogue that works for teachers uh, and local schools in eastern Poland. You know, I mean, they're all over and they're rediscovering local and regional history through their investigation of their small towns and villages, Jewish past. Um, so how Jewish, how, well, how Jewish, how Jewish is this story and how Polish is this story? I think it's a, and how global or cosmopolitan, um, depends what you're asking there. I would say it's a very Polish story in the sense that it's, it's Poles doing a lot of the soul searching and the rediscovering and uh, the cultural uh, work that's being there. It's made primarily by non-Jews for non-Jews, although Jews are by no way passive in this process. Um, But I think that the dynamics of having uh, a community being erased by you know, from from the past is is a story that you could see elsewhere. You know, you could think of, you know, in Turkey, apparently there's, you know, interest in Armenian culture also, right? So um, there's also contests about difficult issues, um, you know, in the U.S. about uh, slavery. I mean, th- these types of debates occur between different group majority minority groups um where the majority group might be the one you know leading you know or exploiting to a certain extent but really kind of being engaged in recovering a section of their past so i think it's not um uh, i think it's a polish process in poland um but i think it's a, the story that poland is experiencing now is happening in different places. Uh, I think apparently, you know, in Morocco, you have also uh, things that would be similar, you know, uh, with how Moroccans think about their own heritage as friends of the Jews and, you know, the Jewish community from Morocco, etc. So there's, there's other cases we could think and compare with Poland to see how much of that um, is truly uniquely Polish and how much of it is is more generalizable or universal or that go with a certain cluster of cases that that share similar features. Thank you. So unfortunately, we're coming near the end of our time, uh, but I did want to ask two more questions. So the first one has to do again with um, methods and how you went about the research. And this is a book that, as you noted, it, it became what it did because you took your time. And that's what made it a masterpiece of thick description. It's what allowed you to live and experience so many different contexts. I'm just curious if you feel like, and this doesn't necessarily have to be a question for, for scholars of, or rather something for future students of Poland or scholars of Poland, how much how do you go about deciding the right time frame for ethnography when did you know that enough was enough and that you were ready really to bang out the rest of the manuscript and send it in i know covid-19 happened but i don't know if if that was it or if you had a a concrete moment that you hit when you knew well i think that when you're doing interviews and you hear the same things and there is nothing new that comes up, but it's variations on a theme. On the one hand, you have confirmation that you're onto something. And on the other, then we know that, okay, it's time to move to something else uh, in terms of form of data. Um, I could have finished the book before, um, and I was glad, especially, I was really glad uh, that I had not published it 
before law and justice came to power, precisely because people could say or could wonder, oh, well, that was before, you know, but actually, you know, they they came to power and we know the true face of Polish politics or uh, etc. And and actually what you see is that even when they came to power, it continues, you know. So the Jewish uh, revival, either in this communal sense of renewal of Jewish life and the interest in all things Jewish by non-Jews in Poland is not as far from being dead. Um, and it continues, uh, in, you know, in many important ways. Uh, so for ethnography, it's that when you feel like you've done, like, you know, you've been around and done enough and that interviews, new interviews or new observations are confirming, but no longer uh, suggesting new avenues. That's when uh, it was time. But I must say, you always need to close a book. Otherwise, you never have a book, right? So uh, it was time also. I mean, the research was from 2010, kind of, quote-unquote, official research for that, started 2010 and ended in 2019, my last interviews. Um, And I felt I had a a very solid um, interpretation, but, you know, with varied sources over time with both archival ethnographic interviews of visiting cities and villages and also going to Israel with that uh, young, that group of, of young Poles and coming back. I did not interview them on the bus or at sites, right? I was a participant, but then um, interviewed them three, six, and nine months after we returned. So after that, I really felt that the book was, um, I had addressed uh, all the, the facets that I wanted to explore. So just by way of closing our conversation, if you could share with our listeners what next wonderful project they might expect from you. No rush, but uh, what are you thinking about? Well, I'm thinking it will not be an ethnography. Um, So ethnographic work, when you also are a professor, you're no longer a student, is difficult. It's difficult in family life. Uh, For that book, I was going to Poland two, three times a year. Uh, in order to see uh, different events and participate in different communal events. Um, So I think the next book is going to be a more synthetic book. Um, And I'm really interested, and you mentioned my use of visuals, I'm really interested in the aesthetics of nationalism and national identity. Um, So I want to kind of dig deeper in visual uh, sociology and materiality studies as it relates to um, to nationalism um, in Eastern Europe, but also in North America more broadly. Um, so I think that's this. But, you know, this was published in September. Uh, in my other work, I'm really committed now to doing research also uh, on the war in Ukraine and supporting Ukrainian scholars at the Wiser Center for Europe and Eurasia. So I think that the summer, next summer, I will have time to hopefully devote all of my thinking to what I want to do, but something about the aesthetics of nationalism. This sounds wonderful. And yes, I will say again, for the listener's benefit, one of the wonderful things about this book is that it contains a lot of illustrations that really flesh out so much of what our guest has been describing today. And I wanted to thank Genevieve Zubrzycki once again for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. It was really fun, and uh, I look forward to other conversations. Uh, well, I commend to all of our listeners Genevieve Zubrzycki's book, Resurrecting the Jew, Nationalism, Philosemitism, and Poland's Jewish Revival, published by Princeton University Press in 2022. This has been New Books in Eastern European Studies. Everyone have a good evening.